Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Stand with me, and we're going to read Revelation chapter 19 as we continue. Almost finished here, Revelation 19, 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the, give him the glory For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angels said to me, write this, blessed are those uh, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts, to help us, Lord, to, how, to, to just praise you for all that you're doing in this world, Lord. We know that sometimes things look grim, but we know behind the scenes you're at work and you're positioning the world for your soon return. And Lord, we long for that. We ask you, Lord, to just encourage us this morning through your word and uh, just do the heart-transforming work and prepare our hearts even for communion later in the service, Lord. We lift all these things to you. We ask you to come and teach us by your spirit now in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I had the privilege uh, of traveling all over the world as a, a, in my professional career, and, and every time I would go to, uh, you know, when I would set out for a trip or whatever, I, I, would, I would prepare my heart for, to be available to God. And I, I, I sort of saw it as a mission, you know, I was a missionary being sent out to do my ordinary job, but I wasn't a businessman who happened to be a Christian. I was a Christian who happened to be a businessman. Very important you understand that. Because whatever you're doing, it, that, that is not who you are. You're, if you're in Christ, that is who you are. That is your identity. What you do on this earth is just the, the doors that God opens for you to minister to people to be who you are. So listen, if you're in a, a, a secular workplace, that is your ministry. And if you avail yourself to the Lord, he will take advantage of you. And so the Lord would allow me all kinds of opportunities to share the gospel with various different people. And, and uh, this was before I was a pastor, by the way. You don't have to have a title to share the gospel. 
Um, so I, I went into this one particular trip. I went to China, and I was in uh, visiting a, uh, one of my vendors there, and uh, this lady actually had a, 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 a consumer business where she sold this particular product in China to people with diabetes. And so she would put on these, uh, these seminars in China, and she would educate um, all of these people with diabetes about this product and how it can help them and, and these sorts of things. And, and uh, she has all kinds of clinical trials on it and such. And anyway, so I was over there. She knew I was a believer. She knew that I, I shared the gospel with her countless times. She was hardened kind of to the gospel. And yet she, she knew something else about me. She knew that I played guitar and I sang. So it just so happens that I'm in Beijing at this time, just right off, right near Tiananmen Square, by the way, communist China, and she knows I'm a believer. And she says, hey, I'm hosting a seminar uh, this, this weekend. Would you want to play a song for us? And I said, Lord, I'm available. So here's the thing is that I said, absolutely, I will do that. Now, what she doesn't know is I only play Christian songs. So uh, I get a guitar. They get me up there. There's thousands of people in this auditorium. And I, I'm thinking, like, Lord, what do, you, what do you want me to play? And the only song that came to mind at the time was that song, Hallelujah, Your Love is Amazing. You know, your love is amazing, steady and unchanging. Your love is a mountain firm beneath my feet. Your love is a mystery, how you gently lift me. When I am surrounded, your love carries me. Sing it with me. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Your love makes me sing. And I sang this song as long as I could sing it. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Your love makes me sing. And these people are sitting there just like, wow. Are we here to talk about diabetes or praise the Lord? Yes, we are. It was interesting that, you know, that word hallelujah crosses every language barrier. It means the same thing in every language, and they say it very similar. Um, and, and so it was interesting when she asked me, hey, you kept saying this word hallelujah. What, is it, what does that mean? And I said, give me the mic, sister. We're about to have church in this place today. And I started to talk to the people about hallelujah means praise the Lord. Praise ye Yah. Or praise God. And the reason that we can praise God is because he loves us. And because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins that we could be reconciled to him. I have no idea if they're understanding what I'm saying. But I'm preaching the gospel to thousands of people in communist China at a diabetes seminar. <laughs> Listen, only God can do stuff like that. But he uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. If you're available. And so the Lord, you know, allowed me that privilege. And I wonder to this day if there aren't 70-year-old Chinese people walking around Beijing singing, Alleluia, Alleluia, you know, I, I, I don't know what God did with that, but that's not my concern. My concern was to be obedient and be available. 
And I want to encourage you this morning, you know, you might think you're not making any impact where you are, but maybe it's because you're not looking. Maybe it's because you're not available to the Lord. Listen, don't despise the days of small things. Be who you are to be in the moment, and God will do much more with you, but you got to be faithful with where you're at. And so the Lord gave me all kinds of opportunities. The reason I share that story is because it reminded me of, uh, you know, in this passage that we have before us today, I, I, you know, these hallelujahs repetitively over and over again, hallelujah, 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 praise the Lord, you be exalted, O Lord, all of the praise that's going on in heaven, forever and ever we will praise him. And so I've entitled the message this morning, The Hallelujahs of Heaven, and there are multiple hallelujahs that God is being praised for here in our text this morning. Uh, verse 1 sets the tone for us, and here's what it says. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. So after John had been given these visions, and uh, two different visions in chapters 17 and 18, two separate visions relating to the great prostitute Babylon, the religious system that existed, chapter 17, that the Lord destroys that. And then the commerce system, the political system, those sorts of things. The Lord is he says, uh, Babylon has fallen, fallen. The Lord is destroying this worldly system that will exist during these seven years of tribulation. And the cry from heaven is hallelujah, hallelujah. The, the focus is what John is hearing. John is hearing hallelujahs from heaven. And there are various different reasons hallelujahs from heaven are coming down. The first thing that we notice is that hallelujahs are coming down from this great multitude in heaven for salvation, for salvation. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Listen, I don't know about you, but if, have you stopped praising God for your salvation? Is it so ordinary to, to you uh, today that you've been walking with the Lord for so long that your salvation has sort of lost its oomph? Listen, if that's you, you're backslidden. You are backslidden. Uh, if you can get over the fact that God would save you, there's something going on in your heart that you need to examine. It's a serious thing. We should never cease praising God for our salvation, folks. We should praise him over and over and over again. Uh, you know, we should find ourselves often being so grateful to God for what he's done for us. I promise you, for all of heaven, you will thank him and you will praise him for your salvation. So why would you get over it here? We're in practice for heaven, folks. We should make this a routine in our lives to thank the Lord, to praise him for the salvation that he's given us. Now, there are three different aspects of our salvation that I want to point out to you very quickly. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Three different tenses. There's a past tense, there's a present tense, and there's a future tense relating to our salvation. First, we're going to look at that we have been saved. If you're a Christian, your salvation, in a sense, is past tense because it's a decision. It's one decision. And when you make that decision for real, in sincerity, the Lord takes the gavel in heaven down upon the judgment and he says, you have been justified. So there's a point in time in your life where everything changes, where the Lord takes all of your sins, past, present, and future, and he washes you clean. 
positionally, you stand before the Lord perfect. It's a one-time act. It's called justification, spoken of by Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by what? Faith. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that idea there, the possessiveness of our peace, comes through justification. One-time act. The Lord says, the blood of my son is enough for the, your entire life. From the time you were born to the time you will breathe your last breath, the blood of Christ is sufficient for you. I justify you by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we have that peace. It's a possessive word implying continual possession. In other words, you don't get unsaved ever. You're either saved or you're not. You don't undo justification. It's impossible to do that. You can't undo justification. And so the big dilemma in churches is, well, you know, oh, I, I sinned. I've lost my salvation. You don't understand the gospel if that's the case. You, have, you don't understand it. You don't get unsaved because you sin. The blood of Christ is powerful enough to cleanse you from all your sins. And the Lord does that. So if you're feeling unsaved, then maybe you are unsaved, but it's not because you were saved and then you got unsaved. It's because you were never saved in the first place. Because God requires 100% of your life. Not 99.9, not 99.99, 100% in full sincerity and surrender to him. Crowning him the Lord of your life. And the, God, the Lord tells us when we come to him like that, he will receive us in, number one. He will forgive us for all our sins, but then he will give us peace. Praise the Lord. That is the past tense of our salvation. There is also an aspect in which we are being saved, present tense. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is fully to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Being saved here means our salvation is being worked out in us daily. Positionally, you're saved, you know, before the Lord. It's past tense. It's a one-time act. But practically speaking, on a daily basis, you're working out your salvation. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? We're supposed to, on a daily basis, God is working out our salvation. We're being saved. And here's the awesome thing about it is salvation belongs to the Lord, therefore, you know, he will complete your salvation. Uh, Philippians 1.6 tells us, and I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't see a whole bunch of us in that passage. It sounds like God is doing the work in us. All we have to do is surrender ourselves to him, guys. It's not rocket science, but man, is it hard. <laughs> it's, it's difficult, isn't it? But Praise the Lord that he is able to work in our lives continually. There is also a sense that our, our salvation is future. We will be saved. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul alludes to this. You know, it's speaking about us being sealed to the Holy Spirit, and all he says, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, listen, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The final stage of our, our, our salvation, folks, is when we are glorified in heaven, when the Lord takes us from this earth and we put off 
uh, morality, and we, uh, well, immorality, and we put on morality. We put off the temporary, and we put on the eternal, where we are changed and transformed, as Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and on there. We will be saved. It's a promise to you and I. It's not something that we have to question. There is a, there is a point in which a believer comes to a complete and total understanding that they will be saved. It's called eternal security. It's, it's as you walk with the Lord and you understand, you know, how gracious and good he is and how the blood of Christ is so powerful that it can wash all your sins away all at once. And you have that understanding that it's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone that you're saved. You, you have that understanding, not just up here, but you, you have it in here as well. Then you have that confidence, 100%. I will be with the Lord one day. I will be saved. So, you know, you could say it also like this. It's the same idea, and you maybe have heard it this way. Um, you know, it's first justification, past tense, sanctification, present tense, glorification, future tense. Same idea there. Uh, you know, so salvation alone. We glorify the Lord. We praise him. Hallelujah for salvation, but also glory and power also belong to the Lord. If you read in the original text here, the, the possessiveness of these words, it really says, it, it literally, the salvation and the glory and the power. It's singular. In other words, there's no other salvation. There's no other power. There's no other glory outside of God. He possessively it has all of those things. And anything else is fake. Or it's a lesser version of this. But God possesses the salvation, the glory, the power. There's only one, and it's in him. So hallelujah for salvation. Next we see hallelujah for the final judgment. Look at verse 2. For his, ju his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So here we find all of heaven praising God for his final judgment against the great prostitute that we spoke about in uh, Revelation chapter 17, who has corrupted the earth with him, her immorality, and she has shed the blood of God's servants. Since chapter 5, guys, since the, the chapter 5, we've, we've, we, the, the cries of the martyrs, of the saints, underneath the throne of God have been crying out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? How long, O Lord, will you allow our blood to be spilt on this earth and, and not judge this world? How long, O Lord, before you uh, cause Babylon to fall? And the Lord told them, just wait a little longer. Just wait a little longer. It's coming. I'm faithful to my word. I do everything I say I'm going to do. And here we find hallelujah from those who have been crying out that their blood be avenged. Uh, and they make this declaration, true and just are your judgments, O Lord. True and just are your judgments. 
It's the same phrasing that we read in Revelation chapter 16, verse 7. During the third bowl judgment being poured out on the earth, John records, and I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. These are the tribulation martyrs who have been killed during this time. Those who came to Christ after the rapture of the church in the beginning of the tribulation period, and they've been martyred for their faith in Christ. And they were crying out, how long, O Lord? And then they'd make that declaration, Lord, everything you do is true and everything you do is just. You know, that's not the sentiment in the world today. I don't know if you know that, but um, the world doesn't necessarily think God is true and just. You know, sometimes we look up at God and, and this can even happen within, the, within a Christian heart who's disgruntled with their walk and they can say, Lord, why are you doing this, Lord? As if he's not true and just. Everything God does is true, and everything God does is just. Many will say he's unfair, but that is a false accusation. God is nothing but fair and good. Babylon here, we find, has gone up in smoke forever and ever. And these are praising the Lord for that reason. They're praising the Lord, and listen, and it's important you understand this, They're not praising God because the wicked have perished. That's not why they're praising God. They're praising God because this false system, the enemy has been defeated. And I think it's important we understand who our enemy is. Uh, You know, with the things going on in our world today, praise God for Roe v. Wade being overturned and and praise God for the things that he's doing in this world and, and, you know, some, some, some justice coming, you know, and all of these sorts of things. But understand this. Your enemy is not of flesh and blood, folks. When you see somebody who's, who their sin is outward and, and they're vocal about their sin, understand that is not your enemy. Those are the people you're supposed to try and deliver. Those are the ones you're supposed to get close to so that you can share the gospel that can set them free. Not revile them. You know, and, and I think that I'll tell you, I'll tell you my own personal struggle sometimes. And it was when I encounter somebody that's very outward with their sin, I can, I can sometimes have a disgusted, you know, sense in my heart, be like, you, who do you think you are? Kind of idea. If, did anybody bear witness with that? Like, there's a wall that goes up in your heart and you think like, man, I, you know, the wickedness and, and listen, I'm no better and you're no better. The difference is we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. That is not your enemy. That is your mission. Those people are your mission, whether it's the LBGTQ community or whether it's, uh, you know, those who are are standing up for abortion. That is your mission field. That's who you're supposed to go after. Those are the, you want to, listen, praise God for the legislation, but that will not change the world, folks. What changes the world is the gospel. We have to get back to sharing the gospel. And I know this is going to be super convicting, but think about this. When is the last time you truly shared the gospel with somebody? I didn't say invite them to church. I said actually invite them to come to know the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm saying, hey, you're a sinner and you need Jesus Christ and I'm here to offer you Jesus right now. When is the last time you've done that? The church has stopped evangelizing. What we've done is we've started inviting people to church. That's not the Great Commission. 
That is literally shirking my responsibility with the gospel of grace that God has entrusted me with. Listen, share the gospel right there on the spot. Do not wait for church to come. Share the gospel right then and there. They're your mission field. Paul reminds us again that the enemy that we have is not a flesh and blood. It's a spiritual enemy. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Know your enemy. Every single situation that you see in this world, it doesn't matter what the sin is, it's a result of spiritual deception. And therefore, there's only one solution for it. And it is not Capitol Hill. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understand that. You have the power within, your, within yourself, the knowledge to share with somebody how to set them free from whatever it is that they're struggling with. And it's unloving to hold that back. Share the gospel with people. Here it is, Independence Day weekend. You want to see true independence. You want to see people be set free. Share the gospel with them, folks. The enemy has been defeated by Jesus Christ on the cross. We have the upper hand. We're not fighting for victory, folks. We already have it, and we want to share that with everybody and anybody we can. Amen? So we praise the Lord for his final judgment. Then we, 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 here, here we find hallelujah for God's sovereignty. Look at verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the, from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So here we're introduced to two different groups of people in heaven that we've seen repeatedly through the book of Revelation here, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. The 24 elders, many different representations of that. I believe that it represents the raptured church, the completed church. Some people believe that it's a, a mix of the church and the Old Testament saints, maybe the 12 apostles and the, the, 12, uh, um, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, I think it represents the church. And there's a distinction in the book of Revelation between the bride and the saints. There are two different sets of people, and we'll get to that in a second. But here we find the, 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 the 24 elders, whom I believe to be the completed church that was raptured, and the four living creatures who are the angelic hosts that live around the throne and tend to the Lord. They are literally the worship leaders of heaven. Everything they do, everyone follows. They begin to sing, everybody sings. They fall down, everybody falls down. The 24 elders fall down, everybody falls down. And notice what they're doing here. Both groups fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. What are they saying? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Why? Because God is on the throne. He is sovereign. And everything that's going on in the world today is not outside of his control. It's in his control, folks. 100%. Not a single thing is going on that God said, oh, man, I didn't see that one coming. He's sovereign. He's on the throne. He never left the throne, even though it feels like that to us sometimes. That's why we don't walk by feelings, because feelings trick us. We walk by truth. The truth of the Bible says that God is on the throne 100% of the time. He's sovereign in everything that he does. 
That doesn't mean he makes you come to salvation in Christ or anything like that, but what it tells you is that he is 100% in control of all the things that are going on in the world, and he limits himself to whatever limits he put on himself. And that is this, that we have free will. He allows us to, to make choices. But even within those choices, he's 100% in control of that. He's 100% in control of how far he will let that go even. He's sovereign. He's on the throne. That's the idea here. Notice, and from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you servants who fear him, small and great. So here, is in, here we find an additional set of voices now praising the Lord. The first set of voices, probably angelic. Now we find all the servants of God, everyone in heaven now, joining in and praising God for who he is and for all that he's done. Uh, making this declaration, you alone are worthy for you are on the throne. Not only do we praise him for his sovereignty, but also next we find we praise him for, for the fact that he reigns. Look at verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the uh, sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. John hears the voice of a great multitude. Here is all of heaven. It's like a roar of many waters. You ever uh, stood before, you know, some kind of a massive uh, flow of water, Niagara Falls, or some kind of waterfall, and the, 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 the sure power and noise that comes from something like that is, is overwhelming. Um, you know, I remember going to Niagara Falls and just, uh, you know, thinking like, wow, it's, it's amazing the volume of water coming over the edge there and just the sound of the water crashing down on the rocks in the, in, in the pool of water below. And then notice it also speaks about uh, the sound being so loud that it's like the mighty peals of thunder. We have thunderstorms here, kind of. You ever been in the Midwest? You ever been to like Iowa? I, I, there's nothing to stop the sound from reverberating the earth. It's just totally flat. And when the sound comes, when the thunderstorms come, it literally rocks the buildings. It's so loud. It's startling how, how loud the thunder is in certain parts of the world. You know, but this is the idea. The idea here is that the, the volume of worship, the volume of the voices here is so incredibly loud that, that John is like, wow, this is overwhelming. Listen, there is nothing greater in all the earth than to hear God's people come into the sanctuary and just praise him with everything that you have, with everything that you have. It is amazing to, it's just to hear that. I love that so much, but more importantly, God loves that. The Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people. He literally lives in them. He loves them. He rejoices in your praises because he knows that your praises position your heart for him to work in you. And he knows that it's getting you in a place where you are getting, gaining understanding of who he is. That's why uh, worship is so powerful and it prepares the heart. It's positioning you with truth to understand the greatness of who God is. And, um, you know, here, here we find one day in heaven, uh, it will be so loud. Don't worry, Peter's not going to be handing out earplugs on the way in because your ears will be geared to be able to deal with this. Your ears will be tuned to be able to handle the volume of worship, but it's going to be loud, folks. And here's what I would say to you. 
if there's anything on the horizontal that you praise more than God, maybe think about that a little bit and, and maybe try and give him, uh, you know, the, the first position in your praise. There's not a guy in white tight pants, you know, throwing around a pigskin that you should be praising more than God. You know, for what he can do is nothing in comparison to who God is, folks. You know, we need to beware of idols in our life. And if we're praising someone more than we're praising God, it's called idolatry. You know, he deserves 100% of everything that we have to give. And so, you know, practice now because for all of eternity, we're going to be praising him with everything that we got. We're going to be joining in with all of heaven singing hallelujah for the Lord. Uh, our God Almighty reigns. Now you know where Third Day gets their, their, their song, their lyrics for their songs, right? <laughs> there you go. Uh, next we find, hallelujah, here's the final one, hallelujah for the marriage of the Lamb. Here we find here, verse six, let us rejoice. Uh, where am I at here? Then I heard, oh, I'm, I'm in seven. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has, has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the call to rejoice and exalt and give glory to God here is due to the, listen, not the marriage supper of the lamb, but the marriage of the lamb. You don't have a reception until you have the marriage. And so this is the idea, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, just about how, how marriage parallels, how the, this Jew, Jewish weddings, how they parallel all of the gospel and, and what the Lord has done. It's so amazing. But the bride, who is the church, it says first and foremost, has to make herself ready. And here we find the bride has made herself ready, meaning that they've come clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You can't come in any other clothes. You come in your own, your own righteousness, he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. But we come in in the imputed righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. That's how we come positionally before the Lord, and be, that's how we be reconciled to the Father. We're to be pure and prepared for our marriage. We're to be set apart uh, for the Lord, to live for him and, and be prepared for our place in heaven Paul reminds us of this preparation in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember, the context is husbands, you know, and wives and such, but listen to what he says about Christ here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. I know all of the men here have this memorized, you know, so, but let me read it for you just in case you, to jog your memory a little bit. Uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So through the giving of himself, Jesus Christ, he sanctifies his bride. He sets her apart. He says, I'm coming back for you. I'm setting you apart from the world for a period of time. This is your, you're to be dedicated to purity during this time. He says, I've cleansed you and I'm going to present you to myself. 
I've done all the work and I'm going to present you to myself in splendor without spot or wrinkle that you might be holy and without blemish. The Lord has done all the work to prepare his bride for heaven. It's you and I, we're the church. And he's done the work to do that in our lives. It's Christ who has clothed us with his righteousness by grace through faith and not of works. But notice what it says here, that the fine linen is defined as the righteous deeds of the saints. Wait a second. Isn't it imputed righteousness? Isn't it the righteousness of Christ that we come clothed in? Yes. But, but, Paul, but, but John also says something else here, that there is in some sense we are clothed with the righteous deeds of, of, of the things that we do as well. What does that mean? How does that work? Uh, you know, I, I, some people think that it, it's speaking about the deeds that we do from the time that we're saved until the time we go to heaven. I don't think so. Because I'll tell you what, none of my deeds are pure. I don't care what they are. None of them are 100% for God as much as I try to, for them to be. You know, any accolades, we love the pat on the back. We love, you know, people to praise us for what we're doing. And when we do that, we take glory from God. And as much as we try not to, we're human beings and we do that. I don't think this is speaking about, uh, you know, the deeds between the time we come to Christ till we go to be with him in heaven. I think this is speaking about the glorified state that we will be when we're transferred from, from this earth to heaven. Remember, this is in heaven. This isn't on earth. He's not talking about on earth. He's talking about you've come prepared in the righteous deeds of the saints being glorified in that sense. No longer are we just clothed with imputed righteousness from Christ in heaven, but we are also made in his likeness. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we're going to be just like Jesus one day. I think that's what it's talking about. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be super dogmatic about it, you know, but that's how I see it. Uh, you know, what is the bride being made ready for? Notice the marriage of the lamb. And there's an incredible parallel between the stages of a Jewish wedding and the one that we'll partake of in heaven. Ancient Jewish weddings, many of you know, really happened in three, three specific stages. And there's a lot of details, and I'm going to leave some of them out because we would be here all day if I told you the whole process. But I'm going to pick out some ones that I think are important for you to know. First, the first stage of a Jewish wedding was called the seduka, which this is the, this is the preliminary arrangement of marriage by the bride and the bridegroom's fathers. So here's the two fathers coming together, and this could happen as early as two years old, folks. Literally two fathers coming together saying, I want my child to be united with your child, and let's, let's prearrange this. It was prearranged marriages, obviously, and so the fathers agreed on that and such, but here's the thing is, the bride still has to consent to the marriage. Outside of, you know, contrary to popular belief, they just didn't have to get married to this person. The bride actually has to consent to this. And we see that parallel when Abraham sent his servant to go get a, a, a wife for his son. 
And when his servant got there, the, you know, and Rebecca was presented or whatever, and, and the father said, do you want to go with them? It was her choice. She had to consent to that. It's important we understand that, that this, even though this is prearranged, there has to be consent in this from the bride. Uh, similar to you and I, we're predestined by Christ. We're called and we're chosen, but we must consent to the arrangement the Father has made for us. The Lord won't make you get married to him. There is no irresistible grace. You can resist his grace 100% if you want to. I, I don't advise that you do that. But you can if you want to. You can say, no, I don't want to be married to Christ. And the Lord will say, so be it. You don't have to be. Once the bride is consented, generally around the age of 13 or 14, then uh, they, they would be legally married. The bride and the groom would, 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 once she's consented, then what they would do is they would go through what's called a mikvah, which is a, a baptism. They would immerse both the bride and the bridegroom in water, and it was really symbolizing spiritual cleansing and being set apart for when they would come together. So there was a baptism. It's a picture of our baptism, isn't it? After we've consented to Christ and we received him as our Lord and Savior. Jesus was already baptized for you. Have you been baptized? If not, I know a guy that can do that for you. So if you're interested in it, let me know. Fill out one of these connect cards and say, hey, I'd love to be baptized. Why? Not because it saves you, because it does not. It cannot. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse you of your sins. You know, trying to get saved through water just, you know, doesn't work. You need the blood of Christ. But if you've consented and you've accepted Christ, then out of obedience to the word of God, you should be baptized. It's, it's the, the, the ritual here is the idea is I'm set apart for you, Lord. I'm making a declaration to everybody in this room or wherever I'm at that I belong to you, that I believe that you died for me and you rose again from the dead for me and, and that I have, I've been buried with you and I've risen with you because I put my faith in you. What an amazing thing. Next came what is called the arison, known as the official betrothal. After the immersion, the couple would enter what's called a hoopah, which is a marriage canopy, and they would enter underneath that, symbolic of the new household being planned, and they would establish a binding contract. At that point, a dowry would be paid to the bride at that point, which is the guarantee that, the, uh, that her, her bridegroom's coming back for her. It's a gift that he gives her, and he pays her and says, this is just a down payment, but I'm coming back to get you. And then they would share a cup of wine, and he would often say before departing, until I see you again, I won't share in the cup. Who else said that? Jesus said that, didn't he, when he departed this earth. And then he would go and prepare a place for his bride. So in this culture, generations would live under their, their father's roof. The, the, the son would bring his family under the father's roof, and he would be responsible to go back to his dad's house and prepare a place for his bride. And he would, you know, and, and it's interesting that uh, the bride wouldn't necessarily know when the, groom, the bridegroom was coming back. She would have an idea, like, you know, it would be, the, typically it was about a year in between this stage. It was about a year, but she did not know the day or the hour. You know, and so her, her bridesmaids, i.e. Matthew 25, the 10 virgins, had to be ready with their oil in case he came at night so they could 
go out and rush out to the, to the, outward, the outskirts of town and, and, and usher him in with lights to illuminate this and this big profession, pro, uh, procession of praise and such. Can you see the parallel? Listen, this is the stage you and I are at right now. We are in this, the, the official betrothal with Jesus. Jesus says he's drank the cup at, at the Last Supper. We're going to prepare that. We're doing this in remembrance of him. But he said he won't drink of the cup until we're together with him. Where? In heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then Jesus will celebrate with you and I. But right now, Jesus has gone, and he's gone to prepare a place for you. He said, in my Father's house is many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. He's going, he went to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. This is also the betrothal period. This, 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 at the end of this, when, when, uh, when the, the actual marriage ceremony happens, that's the third stage of this. It's called the Nishuin. Um, then the, 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 the bridegroom would come to the town. He and his bride would go back underneath the hoopah. They would officially um, give their vows and they would, uh, they would share in that uh, a cup of wine there at the hoopah. And then at that point, the bridegroom would take his bride to the father's house and they would consummate the marriage. The two shall become one. At that point in time, they, they're married legally, and in order for them to be divorced in that second stage, they would have to have a legal divorce. That was the stage Mary and uh, Joseph were in when she was found pregnant, and he was going to privately divorce her, but he didn't. But then the marriage ceremony comes, and the bride and the groom, the bridegroom and the, and the bride unite together to become one. And Jesus said, We're going to be, we are one with him now. But there is a sense in which in heaven we are going to be truly one with him. You know, we're going to be united with him totally. After that would come the marriage supper, would come the celebration. All, the, all of his brides, the, 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 um, the groomsmen would be waiting outside the door for them to consummate the marriage. Once they did, the bride and groom would come out and they would celebrate for a, for a period of about seven days. They would celebrate the wedding. And, uh, you know, here, here's this, this, this is the, the picture of the rapture where the Lord will come and grab us from this world. He'll take us to his father's house. And we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb with him for seven years. Now, you, you might think like, well, who am I going to invite? Don't worry, God's taking care of that. He's going to invite some people so that you have some people at your wedding uh, reception. Uh, it goes on in verse 9, and the, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Many suggest the bride here is the one invited. When's the last time you invited yourself to your wedding reception? You ever done that? I probably need to RSVP for myself, so I better do that, right? You don't do that. It's not speaking to the bride here. It's, the bride never invites herself to her own wedding. This is probably the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. They're invited. Again, there's a distinction between the bride of Christ and the saints. So we find, actually, in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, the church being mentioned, who is the bride of Christ. But in chapter 4 on, all the way through, we don't find the bride being mentioned until right here. The word church doesn't occur 
in Revelation 4 all the way up until this point. Why? Because we're not here. Because we're in heaven with the Lord. During the seven-year tribulation period, the Lord comes and gets us and he takes us to his father's house and for seven years we celebrate with him the marriage supper of the Lamb. But what about the Old Testament saints? What about the tribulation saints? Don't worry, they get their own little special ceremony. That's on earth during the millennial kingdom. Isaiah chapter 25 speaks about that. So during the, during the, tr the millennial reign, I'm sorry, during the millennial reign of Christ for the thousand years on earth, that is when all the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints will celebrate with the Lord and they will have their own little special dinner. This specifically is for the church, I believe, where the Lord honors us for putting our faith in him as we waited, as we trusted in Christ and those sorts of things. You think, well, I thought there was no distinction in heaven. Oh, there are. There are distinctions in heaven. There's different levels of, of you know, responsibility in heaven, and, and there's different uh, you know, rewards in heaven because of the things that you've done on earth. There is major distinctions in heaven between you and I. How we get there is exactly the same, though. We all have to come through Christ. It's not by what we've done. So, but there are distinctions. And so here we find the Lord's uh, celebrating you and I, his church, the bride. And one day he will, uh, you know, he will have a, a celebration in the millennial kingdom for those, for those others. And maybe we're the one invited ones there that we get to see. Wouldn't it be cool to watch the actual uh, to see the symbolisms of Christ in the millennial kingdom as we watch the temple. We walk into the temple and we watch the way that everything works and how it all points to Christ. In, in the millennial kingdom, there will be a perfect understanding of that. A perfect understanding of how everything in the millennial, everything in the temple pointed to Jesus. If you even look at the articles in the holy place, they, they form a cross if you look at the where they're placed in it. It's so amazing. Ezekiel chapter 40 and on speak about the millennial uh, kingdom that, you know, the, the temple that will be, exist and how, we're, how they're going to do the sacrifices and the rituals and all of that kind of stuff during that time. Not as a way of salvation, but to declare, uh, you know, the symbolisms and how they relate to a Jesus Christ. So amazing. John at this point is just blown away by this angel and he bows down to worship the angel and the angel reminds him quickly, don't worship me. Don't worship me, worship God. He said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant, and you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Again, the only one worthy of worship is God. No man at all, no pastor, no worship leader, uh, no sports icon, Nobody is worth worshiping, not even angels. God alone is worthy of our worship. This final declaration is important to us. It says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, if you're hearing prophecy that leads you away from the testimony of Jesus, it's not God's prophecy. That's what it means. Any teaching of prophecy that takes our minds and our hearts away from Jesus is, is not being properly communicated. It's not the right prophecy. That was uh, David Hawking said that. People preach, there are many people in our world today that say, thus says the Lord, 
but it doesn't point us to Jesus at all. It points us to ourselves about how God's going to bless me and give me all these things. That's not, that's contrary to what he's saying here. All prophecy, not some, all prophecy should lead us to the witness of Christ in some way, shape, or form. Not self-glorification, but glorification of God alone. And so we have to be aware of the things that we listen to and the things that we receive. So as we prepare for communion now, be thinking of the bridegroom and his soon coming. Hey, he's, he's left this earth. We're betrothed to him even right now. And he's gone to prepare a place for us. And he's been there a long time. I can't wait to see the place that he's prepared for me. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's going to be an awesome place. But more importantly than the place is the person. Jesus Christ is going to be, will become one with him truly. So be thinking about that as we remember him in, in the way that he provided for us to be able to come to heaven, and that's by his own sacrifice. He came to cleanse you and I, to wash our sins away. This morning, if, if, if there's things plaguing you, hey, listen, confess those things, and then let the blood of Christ wash those things away from you. Repent, turn away from those things. The Lord says, you know, he, he gives us power to overcome all things through Christ. If you're here this morning and you're struggling, man, hey, remember what he's done for you. Let him be your strength. Don't trust in yourself, trust in the Lord and what he's done for you. If you're encouraged this morning and you're, 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 you're you know, fighting the good fight and you're continuing on and, and doing all that he's calling you to do, man, remember that this is temporary. Yeah, it might be hard, but you know what? He's coming back for you. He gave you the guarantee of the Spirit of God in you. He's paid a down payment on you, and he will come back for you. So as we share in communion this morning, let's just remember him and be encouraged together. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the hallelujahs of heaven. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have poured out, Lord, that we we could even be in a place of uttering a word to you. And yet here we find ourselves uttering praise to you because of who you are and what you've done for us. This morning, God, we pray as we prepare our hearts for communion that you would just wash us, Lord, clean of anything that might, might be in our way this morning of fellowshipping with you. God, that you would bring to mind things that we need to confess and repent of that we would turn our hearts to you and you alone. You alone are worthy. God, we ask you to, to tear down any idols in our hearts and that you would take the rightful place in the throne of our heart this morning. Father, we, we pray for anyone who doesn't know you this morning that they could come to know you right now and partake of communion. Communion is for believers, for those who confess and believe and who have come to Christ. And so we, we pray for anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that you help them to come to know you, even now, in a turning away of their life and in a pressing into you, in believing that in the gospel that you sent your son Jesus Christ to, to live a sinless life for us, to die the sacrificial death on the cross for us, to shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven, and then to rise again from the dead, that we could have victory in Christ. And so if you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord, and, and the Lord's knocking on your heart right now, and he's speaking to you, saying, that's you. You just pray this prayer, Lord Jesus, I come to you. 
by faith now. Turning away from my life, Lord, and I'm turning towards you, asking you to give me a new life. I want to be a new person. I want to be cleansed of my sin, Lord. Will you just wash me this morning? Will you give, change my desires? God, I turn to you now, and I believe that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose again from the dead for me, and I'm putting my faith in him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. The, the elements are going to be passed out to you. Once they're all passed out, we will partake of communion together. These are all gluten-free, by the way, so if you have a gluten allergy, don't worry about it. Uh, if you're low-carb, sorry, there is no low-carb Jesus here. You have to just, you have to just do it anyways. But, but let's take some time and just think about all that the Lord's done for us. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.